Our Father, we come to you again with thankful hearts that we together form a portion of the body of Christ. That as we fellowship together, we are in a, a microcosm, what you see from the throne on high of the church all around the world. And Father, we sense that uh, unity that we can have with our brothers and sisters, whether they be halfway around the globe or in other congregations in this town. We know that there are differences, but Father, we have that great unity in Christ. And may that unity grow stronger. May your people be drawn closer together, forgetting those minor differences and putting their hearts together and their minds of one accord, that we might truly serve you and reach out to a world that is in such great need today. We're so grateful for those who are uh, across the seas and who are ministering in various parts of the world. We're thankful for the Christian Missionary Alliance, which sponsors 1,200 missionaries in different uh, parts of the world. And we just pray that this will be a fruitful day throughout your church. Bless us now this hour. Guide our study of this passage of Genesis in Christ's name. Amen. Genesis chapter 26, <coughs> beginning at verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land, besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and to your descendants I will give these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. And I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven. And I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. We began to look at this passage last week, just briefly, and it's very interesting that uh, we read often, do we not, about famine in the land, particularly in the land of Canaan. And the land of Canaan is located more or less geographically similar to uh, central and southern California in its relative to position to the sea, the climate, and so many different aspects. And we uh, know what uh, drought is like here in California. We've experienced two major droughts in the last 20 years. Now, that has not produced famine in California, and there are many reasons for that. Partly the fact that we irrigate here in California, that we are able to bring products into California from the outside. We have good distribution. We have things they didn't have in those days. In those days, you had a, a direct impact. If there was drought, there was famine. You didn't call you know, United Grocer Trucks from 700 miles away to bring food in. Uh, you didn't have famine relief agencies in those days. You didn't have irrigation in the sense that we have irrigation today. You didn't have the Israeli uh, what, research that's produces, produced some of the best drip irrigation systems in the world in those days. As a result, if you had drought, the only way you really could handle that drought was to migrate. 
And we know of many instances in Scripture, and we read briefly that first verse of the book of Ruth, where we're told that uh, when there was drought, they moved from Bethlehem over to Moab, and that, of course, is where the uh, two sons of uh, Naomi met their wives, their brides-to-be, and thus becoming their wives, and one of them, Ruth, becomes the central character of that particular narrative. We know a little bit later that Jacob would move down into Egypt to escape a famine in the land. So that was a very common thing to do. And so what does Isaac do? He will migrate in order to escape the famine. Now, the question that comes to the minds of many people, particularly people who do not understand the God of the Bible, who don't understand the teaching of Scripture, and even to some who do, there is sometimes this question, why does a God who is all-powerful and all-good allow famine, especially when it impacts the young so heavily as it does? And, of course, we know today that uh, the advertisements for relief agencies almost always show starving children. Oh, sometimes they show the adults, too, but they focus on the children because that builds the sympathy. Uh, in, in the minds and hearts of those who are watching the advertisement. Why does God do this? God's able to prevent famine. God's able to intervene in any way he uh, would choose to do so. And he definitely is a God of love. So why does it happen? Well, I began last week in looking at what I think are at least three scriptural reasons why God allows not just famine, but other kinds of calamities, as we would view them, to come upon the land, wherever it might be. First of all, God allows calamity for judgment purposes, and we see this over and over again in Scripture. The Great Noahic Flood is, of course, one of the primary examples of this, where a massive flood came to wipe out all the population of the world, save the eight that were on the ark. And there are many other examples. You read the passage in Ezekiel and uh, the passage in the book of Revelation where it talks about the black rider on the black horse, the rider on the black horse coming out as the symbol of judgment in the form of famine. So judgment is a reason for famine from time to time historically that God allows it. Secondly, God will allow famine, amongst other things, to persuade people that they need to pay attention to God. And I find that whether this is macroscopically in the sense of a whole nation or individually in the life of one of us, God allows these things because he wants us to wake up. You know, the old two-by-four approach to uh, knowing whether God is speaking or not. And... Uh, I noted that one of the best examples of this in Scripture was in the days of Elijah, when Ahab was under the influence of his wife Jezebel, and the country was uh, infected with the prophets and the teaching of Baal. And Elijah challenged them to a duel, if you will, on the top of Mount Carmel. Now, it tell, we're told there that the people came to watch. Why did the people come to watch? Didn't they have anything better to do than come to watch a crazy prophet on the top of Mount Carmel? <coughs> well, we might say just curiosity, you know, kind of the circus mentality. But I think it's because they had become 
keenly aware of the fact there was a big problem because there had been drought for, all, for three and a half years and there was famine in the land and God had gotten their attention. And so now they wanted to go out and find out who is really God here, Baal or Yahweh. And so there was this great contest and when God answered Elijah's prayer with lightning from heaven, with fire from heaven, which destroyed everything, the offering and the, the, the stones, the whole thing, what did the people do? They fell on their faces, we're told in Scripture, and they cried out, Yahweh is God. God had their attention because of the calamity that had preceded it, and then they responded appropriately. So, what we have here is persuasion. But there is yet a third reason why God allows calamities such as famine, and that is testing. And that's, of course, what we see here. As in the case of Abraham, there was a drought, and Abraham left the land. In the case of Jacob, we'll be seeing later, there was a drought, and he migrated down to, Le to Egypt. And in the, <coughs> pardon me, in the case of Isaac, there is a drought, and it is there partly as a trial of his faith. Are God's people spared the tragedies that strike the world? Are we immune to famine and uh, pestilence and all of the things that occur in the world today? I, I think all of us would have to te testify to the fact that we are not immune. Oh yes, God does preserve us from time to time in a, in a very obvious manner, but not always. We know that God allows these things to happen for reasons that are spelled out very clearly to us in Scripture. And uh, passages that we have referred to several times, and passages that you know so well, let's just uh, refresh our minds again this morning. In 1 Peter chapter 1, we have these uh, not always so encouraging verses uh, in the sense that it teaches us that t testing is impending, but encouraging in the sense that when we're in the midst of trial, we know the reason why. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, that the proof, the assaying, the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God allows the testing of our faith. And of course we know the story of Job so well. And the story of Job gives us insight into the fact that Testing often comes through the agency of the enemy, but at the permission of the Almighty. And that testing can produce good fruit, as it's intended here, that the tri trial of your faith will produce praise and glory and honor as we stand before Jesus Christ. You think of a, a ship that has been built to sail on the seas. If that ship were to sail only on quiet seas, almost any ship could sail on quiet seas. Almost anything that has a buoyancy to it could sail on quiet seas. But what about on the stormy seas? 
Will they last? Now, I don't know how many of you read that account recently in the Reader's Digest called Capsized, talking about a man who built a trimaran, and uh, they were sailing out on this journey in the South Pacific, and the guy said, this ship cannot be capsized. It cannot turn over. Well, as you well know from the title of the story, it did capsize. And they spent three, was it three? Four months floating around in the Pacific in a capsized trimaran with nobody knowing where they were. And they survived. And it's interesting when you read it, they say something about, uh, they did give grace, but they didn't seem to know who they were giving praise or thanks to for their survival and for the food. They didn't mention God. It just sort of, who's ever out there, you know, we're thankful. But most of us are very well familiar with the Titanic, which was the unsinkable ship, right? Uh, if you ever have read the story, there's this little phrase in the beginning of the original book written about it where, where the quote, a quotation is given by the man who built the ship who said, not even God can sink this ship, you know. <clears throat> Because it had so many bulwarks inside there that were watertight that they couldn't visualize any way that you could flood enough of the ship for it to sink. And of course, so they ran into an iceberg which tore a 300-foot hole in the side of the ship. Well, that was too many watertight bulkheads to flood. And as a result, great loss of life. It's through the trials, the storms, that the real strength of a ship is proven. It's through the trials and the storms that our faith is made something that has meaning in this life. If Christians didn't have problems, it would be easy to win many people into the kingdom. But what kind of kingdom people would they be? But seeing Christians go through the difficulties that non-Christians go through and to see them give praise to God in the midst of it all and trust in God. And, and sometimes without the miracle, without God reaching down and just you know, removing that cancer and restoring life, he does that often, but he doesn't always. And, and in it all, there's this sweet savor that goes up to the praise of God. And that's the, what it, is the purpose here, the praise, the glory, and the honor that comes to Jesus Christ at the revelation of the church. That's what it's about. And, and James, of course, who went through many difficulties, says in the first chapter, the second through the fourth verses, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, we become what we can become through Jesus Christ. The true metal the goal that's there is, is made real. It's sort of like, you know, when they go down, they dive deep into the sea and they pull up the treasure from a sunken vessel and sometimes it's all covered with barnacles, but they chip that stuff off there and their gleaming gold is there to be seen. And when the trials come our way, it chips off the barnacles, if, it will, if you will, uh, of our lives and the gold of the reality of what Christ is in our hearts and our lives is, is made evident to the world. Now that doesn't mean we don't uh, sometimes complain. It says consider it all joy. That's an encouragement. We should think that way. But most of us don't just you know, do a little jig and 
say, you know, praise God every time a trial comes along. Sometimes we moan and we groan and we say, God, why me? And, and we know, though, from what the Scripture teaches, that God is there with us. And God doesn't condemn us when we say, "My, why me? He wants us to learn. He wants us to know the truth of who he is in our lives. And we can't really know the reality of who he is in our lives unless we go through the storm and the trial and the tribulation. So testing is there. God allows famine or pestilence or war or all of these things for the purpose of the trial of his people that they might come out more precious than gold. Now, when you speak about famine, we're often reminded of that passage in Amos that talks about a famine that's far worse than a famine for food. Most people wouldn't acknowledge that. Most people would say, oh, there is nothing worse than a famine, than, than a physical famine. There's nothing worse than not enough food. Just look at Somalia, if you will, or Ethiopia, or some of the other places of the world where there's a great deal of starvation. Isn't that the worst possible condition? Well, no, there really is a worse condition than that. But the majority of people in the world don't realize that such a condition exists in their lives and could exist in a whole country. In Amos chapter 8, reading verse 11, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine for bread or a thirst for water, but rather for hearing the words of the Lord. And people will stagger from sea to sea and from north even to the east. And they will go to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. God tells us in his word that he is not mocked. Whatsoever we sow, we shall reap. But God is patient. And it seems that God accepts mocking at times. Because he doesn't strike down you know, the atheist who stands in a corner and says, I, if God is up there, I give him 30 seconds to start, strike me dead. And of course, when that doesn't happen, he says, see, there's no God. Or the atheistic cosmonaut who goes out there and flies around in the upper atmosphere and says, I didn't see God, so he must not exist. I mean, his theology is a little weak, I think, uh, when it comes to that. But God will not allow his name, his word, his existence to be mocked forever. There is a point at which he says, I draw the line, and now is the time when I will bring judgment. He will remove his word, and the hunger and the thirst for it will begin to grow, and people will not even recognize that they didn't have it until they don't have it. They didn't even consider it important until they don't have it. And I think that is clearly illustrated in what has happened in the Soviet Union in the 20th century. If you're familiar with the history of Russia, you know that Christianity came to Russia in the year 1088, theoretically. That is, that's when uh, Vladimir ordered the whole population of the city of Kiev to get baptized in the Danube River, and they spent uh, a week baptizing the whole population of the city in the river, you know, kind of en masse, uh, type uh, conversion, but Christianity eventually seeped into that country, and uh, Vladimir is credited with having chosen Orthodox Christianity over Catholicism or 
uh, Judaism or Islam, according to the primary chronicles, he had sent individuals to these countries and then had people come from those countries to tell him about their religion and God guided him to choose the Orthodox faith, you know, out of Constantinople. And theoretically that's why Christianity uh, came to Russia from Constantinople and Russia became, that is Moscow, later became the quote, Third Rome, as they called it. But they took for granted the Christianity that existed in that country for a thousand years. And, and the church became monolithic, and, and, and the religion became a, just a social matter for the most people. And as a result, what happened? Well, in 1917, you have the Bolshevik Revolution, you have a, an atheistic government taking control, and they began to attempt to eliminate Christianity from the country. Well, they never really got around to doing it, totally. It's not they didn't get around to it, they weren't able to. But the word was denied to the masses. And what happened? I think that more than any other thing, it was the spiritual famine that toppled the monolithic Soviet government. We can talk what we want to about democracy and economics, and, and sure, these things all played a role, but it was the spiritual famine that really toppled that Soviet government and caused a great thirst and hunger for God's Word that we are seeing today, which as was presented in our church over the last month or so a couple of times, there is a great desire to bring people from this country into Russia to teach teachers, to teach children about God and morality and the very things that are illegal in this country to teach in public school. We discover, as we read in the book of Genesis, that there was a famine in, recorded in the 12th chapter, and now there is a famine recorded in the 26th chapter, and there is no mention of famine between those two passages. The inference in 26 is, in fact, that there was no other famine in the intervening years, at least on any significant scale. That's about a hundred-year period in which there was apparently not a drought <clears throat> nor any major war that would produce a famine in the land. So God had blessed that land. Why? Probably partly because of the fact that his covenant man was there, Abraham. Now it seems that the famine in this particular chapter, 26, is of more limited scope than the famine that was recorded back in the 12th chapter of Genesis because Isaac does not have to trot on down to Egypt. Not that Abraham had to either, but he thought he had to, so he did. Isaac merely has to migrate northward to, to Gerar from where he was at uh, Beersheba. And so he does. And that's what we read about in this passage. Now we know that Abraham himself had also sojourned, as it were, in Gerar about 80 years before. And uh, we remember the story there. Now, conditions in Gerar were probably not exactly wonderful. I mean, it wasn't the Garden of Eden all over again. It was tolerable, food was available, but it was sort of probably on the ragged edge here. And so it's very possible Isaac was toiling with the idea of going down into Egypt. And that is what stimulates, it seems, God's appearance to Isaac. 
He comes to Isaac and he says, don't go to Egypt. Stay here because this is the land of promise that I have given to you and your descendants. Now, if you read through Genesis up to this point, you'll discover that this is the very first time that God appeared to Isaac alone. The only other time we have record of Isaac having cognizance of the presence of God in, in a visible or audible manner was on the top of Mount Moriah when he was but a lad and God was speaking primarily to Abraham, but Isaac was there to hear uh, what went on. There is no record of any appearance to Isaac before this particular time that we read about in this, in this passage. So God is now speaking directly to Isaac. Isaac can say now that it's not because of my father alone that I have contact with God and that I know I'm the covenant man, but God has now spoken directly to me. And you know as you read in this particular passage here in Genesis, what is God doing when he gives these statements? He says, sojourn in the land, verse 3, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give these lands. Now, to whom had God said this before? To Abraham. Now God is taking it from directly to Abraham and putting it directly to Isaac. Isaac can now personalize this promise. It's his. He is the covenant carrier. He knew that already because God had said that to Abraham and Abraham had told that to Isaac. But now Isaac knew directly from God, I am the covenant man, the covenant carrier. And I will give you these lands and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and will give your descendants all the lands and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now remember, God had said this to Abraham, first of all, back when he was to uh, leave Haran and go to Canaan. And God, in chapter 12, first spoke to Abraham that we have record of and, and gave him this promise and told him what to do. And then God repeated it in chapter 15, right after the Melchizedek episode. And then God uh, repeated it again in chapter 22 on Mount Moriah. And so it was really firmly pounded in to the head of Abraham. And now Isaac is told, to your descendants these lands will go, and I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven, which is what he told Abraham, remember? In chapter 15, he said, Abraham, come outside. And he went outside and he says, look at the heavens. Look at all those stars. Your descendants will be more numerous than these stars. What a visual aid. And now God is saying to Isaac, this is your truth too. You are the covenant man. Now God knew that if Isaac went down into Egypt, he'd be tempted to become ensnared in the ways of the world, and maybe to not walk as he should. Scripture is constantly full, or I should say frequently mentions, warnings. In chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, we have these words of uh, Paul to Timothy. He's telling Timothy to come, come visit me. And, and we've heard this so often, have we not? 
For Demas, having loved the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I mean, those words just, I don't know, as you read through, they, they just jar you. Demas has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Now, back in Colossians, Paul says, well, one of those who is with me here ministering is Demas. And there's nothing negative said about Demas. He's included in all the positive things. And now, Demas has deserted me because he loves the present world. The love of the present world can be a temptation to anybody. I don't care how long we've walked in the faith. But we have a arrayed against us the world, the flesh, and the devil, and inside us, of course, is that, that, that desire to ally with the world and the devil. And, and God knows that. And, and therefore, he teaches Isaac, I don't want you going down to Egypt because there you're going to be tempted by the things of this world. Because Egypt was a land filled with the evidences of the enemy. Dr. Walmark remembers that when we were uh, in Egypt years ago, the lady who was uh, serving as a guide that particular day said to us, why did you spend so much time in Israel, and you're spending so little time in Egypt. Don't you know that Egypt also is a holy land? I just always remember that. Remember that? Yeah. We didn't respond to her in any particular way as we could have, <laughs> but Egypt is not a holy land. Egypt is a vile land and always has been a vile land. Egypt, oh yes, there was a time when it was, quote, within Christendom in the uh, days of the later Roman Empire and the, and the uh, Eastern Empire before Islam swept through. But you can understand how decadent the church had to be in Egypt for Islam to just pick it off as if it were a rotten fruit. The history of Egypt goes back nearly to the dawn of civilization. Only ancient Sumerian civilization is older than Egyptian civilization, and that not by much. And as you trace through the history of Egypt, you find it's always been, yes, a spiritual country, but it hasn't been oriented towards the God of this universe. It's been oriented to the gods of this world. And they have worshipped a plethora of gods. And on the walls of the tombs are paintings of all these different gods that they worship. Worshipped. Yes, the country today is more or less unified in the worship of Allah, even though there is a minority that claim the God of the Bible. But if we had said to that lady, your God is really the God of this world, she wouldn't have been happy with us. So we didn't say that to her. But Egypt has always been a land that represents the world, as far as I understand, at least Old Testament teaching. And later on, of course, Babylon would also fulfill that role. Remember what happened to Lot when he went to Sodom? He was sidetracked. God knew that that could happen to Isaac if he went down into Egypt. He could become sidetracked. Oh, God can keep us wherever we are. But look what happened to the great man of faith, Abraham. He went down there into Egypt and he told a bold lie and got himself in a peck of trouble. God didn't want Isaac going to Egypt. Egypt represents the city of man, whose architect was Satan. 
Isaac was to walk in Abraham's footsteps, as the Hebrews tells us, and seek the city whose builder and maker is God, not to seek the city of man. Augustine in the fourth century wrote a book called The City of God, in which he contrasts the city of God, which Abraham was really pursuing, and, and the city of man, which is the satanically organized and driven city of this world, which represents the world. Remember Vanity Fair in Pilgrim's Progress? A place where you could go and suddenly the allurements of this world would take those who were on the path away and they would cease going on the path to follow God because the allurement of Vanity Fair. Isaac could forget his call and his purpose. God did not want him in Egypt. So he commanded him to stay in Canaan. And so he did. If he obeyed, God said, I will bring all the promises I made to Abraham directly into your life as a reality, if you will obey me. And so Isaac obeyed. And the last verse of the section we read, that is verse 6, tells us what Isaac did. It says, so Isaac lived in Gerar. So he obeyed. He did not go down into the land of Egypt. Let's look at verses 7 through 11. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she's my sister. For he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of this place might kill me in the account of Rebekah, for she is beautiful. You know, we, 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 you know, as you read through the first chapters of Genesis, you think, didn't I read that before? <laughs> you know, and before? And it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, b -b 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 Because... <laughs> I said, lest I die on account of her. And Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, he who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Our king wasn't fooling. Now, one of the first truths that I see in this is that you can be, I can be, he can be obedient in the big picture. But that doesn't guarantee that our daily walk is going to be without its failures. We can be committed to the Lord and we can be desiring to serve him, but we can still goof up today and goof up tomorrow and be off the trail the next day. And so it was with Isaac. Had Isaac been told of his father's failure in Egypt and of his father, father's failure in Abimelech? Had he been told that his father lied to Pharaoh and lied to Abimelech about his mother? Had he been told that? It's just the very same city-state, the state of Gerar, in which Abraham had failed. Now, it certainly is not the same king. Remember, as when we first talked about uh, Abraham being in Gerar, 
We saw that Abimelech means his father is king. So Abimelech is a title, like Pharaoh was a title. Pharaoh was not the name, Pharaoh was a title. Abimelech was a title, not the name. So this is certainly a different king from the time of Abraham. A son or maybe even a grandson of the king in the day of Abraham. I think Isaac was told. I think he knew of his father's failure in Egypt, and I think he knew of his father's failure in Gerar. And that should have been a warning to him. He should have, you know, his computer should have went, ding, 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 ding. oh yeah, that's a stupid thing to do. Look what my dad did. But, you know, either his computer didn't say that, or instead he said, well, look at how godly my father was. And if he did it, why shouldn't I? You know, I mean, I have a better excuse. <laughs> I'm not Abraham. I'm just Isaac. You know, sometimes we think that way, don't we? Sometimes we think, I'm not Billy Graham, therefore I have an excuse for goofing up here and goofing up there. I'm not the pastor, so I can goof up here and goof up there. If the pastor did it, oh, you know, that'd be horrible. But if we do it, you know, we have this idea sometimes, I can't say that's always true, but sometimes we have this idea that because we're one of the spiritual peons, it's okay if we goof up, but it's not okay if the spiritual leader goofs up. That's not the way God sees it. We all are equal in the eyes of the Almighty. He doesn't look down and see this echelon of people and say, well, this guy's more important than this guy or this gal than this gal. We're all the same. And each of us in our failures grieves the heart of God as much as the next person. So I think it's very possible he might have just used this as an excuse. Now, that's not hard for us to do, is it? We look back and we say, well, if David, who was the apple of God's eye, could go over and have an affair with Bathsheba, then there shouldn't be any problem with me, you know, doing something like that. And, and because you, God forgave him, right? We just don't get a real handle sometimes on what it is that God wants and what we should, our response should be to God in these situations. The more we become like Christ, the less we want to do those things that grieve his heart. Like father, like son. Ever heard that before? I can't be blamed if I do this. He apparently had the same weakness, a fear that he would be killed if they desired to take Rebecca. Now, Rebecca was going on half a century old, but she was obviously still very beautiful of form and face and very desirable, as had Sarah been most of a century before this time. And so he, you know, whether it was just part of his natural character to have this weakness or he thought about his father's excuse, whatever it was, he lied. And the deception worked for a long time. What did we read in this passage? It says back in, oh, verse, verse 8, is it? came about, he had been a long, yeah, he had been there a long time. Now, does that mean several months, several years? He'd been there a long time, and this lie had been told, apparently at the beginning, and they were living with this lie 
uh, out there. Everybody's thinking this is brother and sister living together here. And so, you know, when we really get around to it, we'll check in on this Rebecca. This may have been the thoughts of some. Why was this plot or this lie not uncovered sooner? Well, apparently no one made a move to take Rebecca very quickly. Why not? Was it because of the remembrance of Abraham and the situation that had happened there maybe 80 years before? Had that story been told generation after generation and they remembered it? Oh, the, this guy's father said that his wife was his sister and we got in a peck of trouble. Maybe we better be careful here. Or was it that they were just afraid of Isaac because he was a man of great power and wealth? I think that his wealth made the king of Gerar look like a pauper in comparison. Well, whatever was the case, isn't it interesting what God does? God overrules their folly. And God did not allow the situation to develop to the extent that it developed in the days of Abraham. God spared Isaac and Rebekah a tremendous amount of grief. Abraham saw his wife taken away from him, carried into the palace of Abimelech. How would he know what was going to happen to her in there? In fact, his imagination should be that he would know what would probably happen to her in there. And the terrible points, uh, you know, like spear points of, of guilt to know that his wife was in there and who knows what was happening to her in that pagan palace. God didn't allow this to happen. God did not allow Rebecca to be taken away. She always remained in the camp there with Isaac. And so they got along with their lie for a long time. But notice who gives the secret away. It's Isaac. He was out there one day. You all can understand this, I'm sure. And uh, he was caressing his wife there in, in some way outside the tent. So that Abimelech walking along, you know, walking away, looks back out to the window, you know, sort of like David peeping over the top of his parapet later on at Bathsheba as she was down there uh, bathing. And he says, this is his sister. Hmm. <laughs> this is uh, not normally what brothers and sisters do. Now, in the King James Version, they use the word sporting. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a little bit of a foreign word to us in that kind of context. The New American Standard here translates the word caressing. The root word here is laughter, playing. And so there is a, a playful fondling going on here. You know, nothing serious like, you know, would be happening inside a bedroom. But whatever is going on is something that brothers and sisters don't do, but husbands and wives do. Probably shouldn't have been done in public, but nevertheless was. And God allowed it to happen so Abimelech could see it and blow the cover off this whole thing. And it was obvious that this is something that would occur in a conjugal relationship, not in a brother-sister relationship. So Abimelech calls Isaac on the carpet and reads him the riot act. What have you done to us? You have lied. This is your 
wife. <laughs> Isaac feebly defends himself. Poor Isaac. Because I said, lest I die on account of her. Now, that's an insult to Abimelech, and it's an insult to God. Isaac could not say, she is my sister. Now, Abraham could say that because Sarah was his half-sister. But he can't even say that because this gal is his cousin's daughter. Now, what excuse can you use there? Well, because she's my cousin's daughter, you know. So what does that have to do with anything? Verse 10, we see that Abimelech was very concerned about guilt being placed upon his people because of an action that might have occurred. One of the people might have lain with Rebekah. Now, why did he think that way? I mean, this is a pagan king. What do pagan kings know about guilt relative to something like that? Well, for the most part, they don't know much of anything. But he was remembering what happened to his father or his grandfather, whoever was the king in the days of Abraham. And I, do, I think that was recorded very vividly in the chronicles of the kingdom of Gerar. The archaeologists have dug up from the tombs of Egypt and Samaria and Assyria and other places various historical accounts. And some of those historical accounts are very vivid in their description of what took place. And so it's very probable that whether written anywhere or not, this was at least orally transmitted down so that this generation vividly remembers via the story of what happened before. Because God had said to the Abimelech in the days of Abraham, if you touch her, you're dead. And then to prove that he had the power to do it, he prevented the whole royal court, all the ladies in the royal court, from conceiving for that entire period of time, which was long enough for them to know something's wrong here, nobody's pregnant. And so this was made so real that this Abimelech, this descendant of the previous one, was afraid. And he knew that this was a God who spoke with power and was not just a God of bluster, as were the pagan gods. Philistines were a pagan, superstitious people, and they were afraid of Yahweh. They knew, Abimelech knew at least, that God attached seriousness to marriage. And therefore, he felt that Isaac had put the whole nation in jeopardy because one of the people, and I'm sure Abimelech was thinking of himself here, not just some character at me walking by one day, because I'm sure his eye had been on her. What was he peeping out the hole for? I mean, the window anyway for. I think it was, he was toying with the idea, you know, this is, this is a lovely gal. She'd be a great pearl in my harem here. In order to guarantee that Yahweh would not be offended in the Philistines' relationship with Isaac and Rebekah, he issued the order that we read there in verse 11. He, said, he, he gave a, a, an open letter, an open command to the whole population of his city-state. He who touches this man or his wife is a dead man. Now, that's serious. It's not like, hey, you know, uh, if you touch them, uh, I'm going to have to uh, you know, put you out in the uh, 
jail for a, for a week or a year or something or ostracize you, you're dead. We're reminded, I think, in the midst of all of this, that our sin can cause harm to ourselves and can cause harm to others, can cause harm to the body of Christ. But our sin does not hamstring God in bringing about his purposes. God will have the victory in spite of, in the midst of, our failure. That does not mean, as Paul said, that we should go out and sin, that the, that the mercy of God should thus be further displayed and greater glory should go to his name. But God is not prevented from accomplishing his sovereign plan because of our failure. And we see that in this situation. God is going to make Isaac the covenant man. He is going to bring Jacob into this world to, to uh, be the progenitor of the nation. And Isaac's failure is not going to prevent it. Same way with Abraham. And as we read down through the history of the Old Testament, we see this over and over again. Next week, we'll begin with verse 12, and we're going to see something rather novel, very novel, in the history of the Hebrews, especially in the early history, uh, which is mentioned there.